Welcome to episode 86 of the GT on 5G. It's the latest inside scoop on everything 5G. We cover six topics now in about 20 minutes, and it's brought to you by More Insights and Strategy. I'm Will Townsend. Joining me again this week is fellow analyst Anshul Sag. And once again, we welcome Diana from Fierce Wireless to the conversation. So let's get started with my first topic. Actually, today, Oracle and Telefonica announced an expansion of their partnership for cloud service delivery. And uh, I recently was briefed by Oracle on its OCI, its Oracle Cloud Infrastructure Platform. And my question to the two of you is, this could, could this be the best kept secret relative to AWS and Azure for operators? My conclusion is quite possibly. What I like about uh, Oracle's focus is uh, within Telco, they're focused on IT services, network uh, enablement, and enterprise services. And the latter obviously will be very important with respect to private cellular network deployments and that sort of thing. So we've talked about uh, Telefonica Tech in the past. Uh, they have a very broad portfolio. They deliver a lot of managed infrastructure as a service offerings, as well as cloud services. So I really view OCI as a nice extension to what they're already doing. I'm assuming that they've, Telefonica has probably been working with the other public cloud providers. And so what I'll also mention as well is that Telefonica will be hosting Oracle's first uh, pop within Spain, which I find unusual. I figured Oracle was already hosting in Spain, but this expands their footprint with Telefonica. So from my perspective, it's quite compelling. And I'm wondering, Anshul, what are your thoughts? Oracle has definitely, uh, I would say, woken up um, in, in, the tel in the telecom space. Um, mm -hmm. I think they were also kind of lagging on, on the cloud infrastructure side as well. Um, and they've been catching up. Um, and I think that they've done a much better job of um, being somewhat competitive um, with AWS and Azure. Um, but the reality is their market share is still fairly low. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that if you look at where they are today, there's obviously tons of room to grow. Um, and I think the key is going to be offering differentiated services. Um, and I think that that's probably going to be where they grow the most because, you know, you know, Azure and um, AWS already have such a large install base and so many partnerships in place already that um, I think the only way that they can really compete with that is by offering something different. I agree. The enterprise service thing will be key for them. If you think about Oracle and other parts of the enterprise, they likely have a position with their, you know, their historic database uh, products. And so they have a nice route to market. But Diana, before we go to your first topic this week, do you have anything to add? Well, I think you guys covered most of it. I mean, uh, enterprise, of course, is going to be key. Um, and to, to Anshul's point, you, you know, Oracle, yeah, they might have woken up to the telco opportunity, but they have a long way to go to catch up. Um, I think, I, I know we're in Q4 now, but uh, in Q3, I mean, Oracle only had like 2% of the overall cloud market or something mm -hmm. tiny like that. So, right. you know, and that compares to when, you know, Amazon's at 30% and Microsoft is, you know, up near 20%. It's gonna be hard for them, I think maybe to, to make a name for themselves in the same way, but 
um, this for sure shows that they're at least uh, making the effort there. Absolutely. Well, great, Diana. So your first topic is around 6G and an alliance. Yeah, so um, the ATIS um, NextG Alliance has been talking for a little while about 6G, um, and they just came out with their 6G roadmap. And this kind of detailed six goals that are going to be their top priorities. Um, I should say they're kind of focused on North America. Um, right. So their their top priorities uh, include advancing trust, security and resilience, um, en enhancing the digital world experience. Uh, helping kind of implement cost efficiencies across network architecture, uh, you know, distributed cloud communication systems, uh, future AI native networks, and sustainability. And all of that is basically a rundown of all the buzzwords we hear now, <laughs> which uh -huh. I find kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, but they also kind of laid out the need to get the government involved in this uh, already. Um, and I think you know, this is just kind of my own speculation, but part of that is probably making sure everybody's aligned on the spectrum, making sure everybody's got the same rules so that we don't run into the thing that we've run into with 5G where everybody else has mid-band spectrum and the U.S. had to play catch up. Um, so I think it's interesting uh, that they're kind of pushing on this already. You know, it, it seems natural because these kind of... Uh, G development cycles, if you will, kind of, you know, are 10 years plus. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's kind of hard for me to take to take it super seriously because a lot of the stuff that, you know, has been promised in 5G, we're still waiting on. Uh, so I don't know, uh, Will, what do you make of this? I just, you know, it's early and, you know, I applaud alliances like this one. And there are a number of others that I follow as well that are trying to get in front of this. You bring up the spectrum point, which is interesting. You know, this is going to be terahertz and uh, certainly at the upper end of the spectrum bands. And it'll just be, it'll be interesting. I think it's too, too soon to, to call anything, but uh, certainly I think some of the work that's being done around millimeter wave, you know, Qualcomm in particular to improve propagation, I, I think could lend itself really well. I don't know. What do you think, Anshul? I have a lot of thoughts, unfortunately. So. <laughs> <laughs> On the first point, I do think the spectrum discussion is an important one to your point that the incumbents need to be identified first. Um, and then, um, you know, with proper government uh, action moved preemptively so that clearing is not an issue. So the spectrum that will be needed um, can be utilized. That said, um, I think we're a long, a long ways away from figuring out terahertz in a mobile form factor. Um, we're still struggling with millimeter waves. So um, terahertz would be an even smaller uh, phased array of antennas. Theoretically, that would allow for a smaller, you know, potentially five different arrays rather than two or three, and they could be much smaller, maybe, possibly, I don't know. But I will say that this conversation and talking about the fact that 6G discussions might be too early, um, I think are somewhat justified. Um, but I will also say that I remember um, going and experiencing some of the early 5G technologies um, deep inside Qualcomm labs in 2015, roughly five or six years after the introduction of 4G LTE. So um, I don't actually think we're too far away 
we're only a couple years away, I believe, from seeing some early implementations of 6G. And, and to the point around terahertz and, and antennas and, and, and whether or not it'll be a mobile product, I, I believe that it's a possibility that we could actually see the, um, the 5, 6G not introducing a new spectrum, like 4G didn't really introduce any new spectrum, and rather um, you know, be, being the G that actually delivers what the promises of the previous G were, right? 3G didn't really fully deliver on its promises. 4G kind of did. And then, you know, 5G might not deliver on all of its promises and 6G might actually be what does it. So uh, I have a feeling that um, the line between 5G and 6G is going to be a lot blurrier. Um, and I'm not sure we'll actually get terahertz and 6G because um, I'm not really sure we need it. And I think that the challenges of terahertz might actually be greater um, than we anticipate. Are you saying uh, 6G is the new 5G? <laughs> That's what it sounded like to me. You know, uh, if you look at the roadmap and you look at what's happening in release 18, um, it doesn't. It looks like it's a very slow climb. Um, you know, I think the difference between 4G and 5G was so drastic that I think that the difference between 5G and 6G will actually be fairly minute um, because. We're already talking about AI in, in networks, right? And to your point, all the buzzwords we're using today for 5G are basically already in this. So I, I think that when you look at what's possible, um, what's probable and, and what's likely, uh, I think it's very likely that 6G is going to be a, a step change from 5G. Well, you've got your own topic to cover now, right? I do. Yeah, let's let's so, get back to 5G. Speaking <laughs> of 5G, um, Samsung introduced the new Galaxy S22 line. Uh, as well as the Tab S8 line. Uh, and these are the newest um, phones and tablets from Samsung. Uh, they are based on uh, Samsung's four nanometer uh, SOC and Qualcomm's four nanometer SOC. Uh, Samsung did a great job of um, talking about their, their own phones and their own chips, neglecting to mention that Snapdragon is taking an increasing share of their devices this year. Um, and it was really funny when they announced the tablet, they said it was a four nanometer processor and didn't name it. But in the background, there was a big Snapdragon logo. I'm like, you can show it, but you can't say it. Anyways, the, the good thing is, is that these devices, I think are probably going to look and feel fairly similar to last year's models. Um, there will be upgrades in a lot of ways, including the modem. We'll be getting a Snapdragon X65. So it's going to be able to do all kinds of carrier aggregation that we're going to start seeing this year. Um, but I think the real big kahuna is the uh, S22 Ultra, which is actually what a lot of people believe is just a Note 21 Ultra kind of reshapen into an uh, S22 Ultra because it looks like a Note and it's got an S Pen built in now. So um, I think that the Note line has uh, somehow attached itself to the S line and now they are one. Uh, with the Ultra being the Note device. Um, and yeah, I think it's going to be very exciting to see what improvements occur. I'm waiting on my device. Uh, I did not catch the first wave with all the uh, press, um, but I will be getting one fairly soon. And I'm excited to see what the network performance will be like, as well as the camera. Um, but I'm mostly interested in network because the camera hardware is mostly the same. Um, and the reality is that the S21, which I still have today, 
which is a miracle because I usually switch phones every three months. This thing really lasted me like a full year. Um, and there wasn't really a phone that had better network performance, better camera performance. So I think Samsung did a great job with S21 Ultra uh, and we'll see what they can do with the S22. Cool. I know um, I got news from both T-Mobile and AT&T oh, yes. that they're being very aggressive on- I, I forgot the about the carrier cycles. deals. Thank you for yeah. the reminder. Yeah. Um, all the carrier deals are basically the same. Uh, I'm pretty <laughs> sure some of them are uh, subsidized by Samsung. For example, if you pre-order before the 25th, you get double the storage capacity of the model you order. Um, I think that that ex exists for every model except for like the top end, obviously, because there isn't a higher end cap capacity available. Um, and then there's also, you know, Samsung's giving some like $200 if you order from their website. Um, most of the operators are offering $1,000 with trade-in towards any Samsung Galaxy S22 device. Um, the reason why is because uh, the Ultra is $1,200. So you'll still probably end up having to pay $200 if you trade in. The caveat is that most of the carriers are requiring you to do this for a premium plan. So you have to have their, their, top, their top plan to get that $1,000. AT&T's is a little bit more um, uh, differentiated in that the first two phones, regardless of what kind of plan you have, um, you trade it in, they'll give you enough money to get a new phone. Um, and then I think they're only giving you $800 towards, um, regardless of what plan you have. Um, so they have a slightly differentiated um, plan there, but overall they're pretty much the same otherwise. And I think a lot of people are going to switch. You know, if you have an S21, it's unlikely you're going to switch unless you're a person like me who switches constantly. Um, but if you're if you had an S10 or older, it's time to swap. It, it, it's 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 got everything you would need. And uh, if you really like productivity and having an S10, um, I think a lot of people have been waiting for an updated version of the Note. Um, and I think that's, this is going to be the one to upgrade to, at least the ultra. Oh yeah. And prices are $800, a thousand and uh, $1,200 starting with the S22, the plus and the ultra. Well, I'll take your hand-me-down buddy when you, uh, when you get the new one. <laughs> Diana, do you want to add anything? It, yeah. Well, he made me anxious when he said he switches phones every three months. I was like, oh God. <laughs> he gets like, all the cool gadgets. I just get all the boring infrastructure stuff. <laughs> oh gosh. Okay. Um, so I guess the only thing I would add is that um, to your point about them all requiring people to kind of jump on those upper tiers, that's something we've heard all the carriers kind of talk about as a way to kind of increase or increase ARPU. Um, yeah. they're, they're trying to progressively step up all the customers up their unlimited tiers, which is funny because I remember back when unlimited was introduced, I think what T-Mobile did the that was their only plan. And now there are tiers again. It's funny the way that worked out. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, so this is, it'll be interesting to see how much this pays off in terms of functioning as a mechanism of being able to step people up. Um, I, I don't know how many people, maybe you guys have better insight into how many people actually are Samsung users versus, I think AT&T has a stronger iPhone base. Yeah, um, it depends. Like every carrier is different. I know yeah. T-Mobile is more Samsung heavy, or at least they were. Um, and I know AT&T is more iPhone heavy, which obviously they were the first carrier to take iPhones. Um, yeah. And Verizon is kind of all over the place, but that's because, you know, they ha they've, they've been invested in, in, you know, being a lead Android manufacturer, even though they have tons of iPhone users. So I think mm -hmm. Verizon is probably the most diverse. 
Um, but the reality is, is that I think competition is good for the carriers because then the devices and the OEMs are going to be more willing to do these promotions. Um, and when there's promotions, people are more willing to get new phones and upgrade to new plans. Yeah. The only other thing I'd mention is uh, the EIPs have kind of bounced back and forth between, um, you know, shorter 24 months and now they're back up to three years. Yep. Um, so it looks like they are desperately trying to hold people on uh, on their networks. Um, again, we'll have to just kind of wait which and is, see how effective this is. Which is really funny because when they're trying to poach each other's customers, now they're offering more money to, to let you leave your, your, your carrier. So it's yeah. kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. Crazy. That's all I've got though on this. So cool. I think it's back to Will, right? Back to me. I'll talk about my second and final topic for this week. So want to provide an update on the rip and replace activity. So, and Anshul and I, we've been talking about this for a while, but the Secure and Trusted Communication Network Act of 2019 established about a billion dollars. And at that time, Anshul and I said, oh, that's not enough guys. So they ended up doubling it to almost 1.9, almost 2 billion, but here's the latest. So the tally came in, the request, and these again are mainly focused in rural America where uh, Huawei and ZTE have had a foothold uh, when you look at 3G and 4G. But the request that came in total 5.6 billion, not oh. surprising. So now the FCC is going to have to deal with that. But, uh, you know, and just to kind of run through the requirements here, the program's designed to reimburse carriers with 10 million or fewer customers for the cost of removal, replacement, and disposal of this equipment. And so um, th this is not surprising to me. Anshul and I called it, you know, a few years ago that it was going to require a lot more. I expect this number is going to go up even further. And so the question that I've got you know, what, what's the impact on, on 5G deployments? Because we're talking about a lot of LTE infrastructure, right? And so, and then how does this all affect the digital divide? And um, Anshul, let me throw it to you. We'd love to get your input. Well, I'm not going to beat my chest because you and I were both right about this. I think anybody, <laughs> anybody who knew, you know, the scale of this problem uh, understood that the, the amount of money set aside was not enough. Um, I think you and I ballparked it around nine or 10 billion. We did. We yeah. talked about it. And I think that's probably what it's going to end up being when all is said and done. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is a, this is a complicated issue uh, that no one really wants to pay for um, because it doesn't affect that many people. Um, and there's not that much money to be made in solving this problem. So I think um, this has to be something that, the senators from these states need to push Congress on. Um, yeah. The whole point of having senators is to balance um, the, the least populous states with the more populated states um, and po potentially deal with these kinds of rural problems. Um, I think that there, there can be some mitigation of costs with technologies like ORAN. Um, yeah, and sure. I, I think this is an opportunity to try and cut costs in that area especially since there's not that much equipment deployed in these areas compared to more urban and suburban areas. So you can mm -hmm. build out potentially a greenfield deployment, um, even if it's not really greenfield at this point. Um, I, I think there's, there's an opportunity for ORAN if, 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 if it's ready. 
Dan, do you have any input? You know, I, I, I don't know if you, I'm fidgeting because I'm buzzing. I, I have a, I'm going to geek out for a second. But first of all, I have to say, when you just said, if it's ready, that's doing a lot of heavy lifting in your sentence. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that's the key caveat. A um, couple of things on this. So when the FCC came up with its original 1.9, well, the, the secondary 1.9 billion, um, I think that they came to that number after, you know, surveying the operators, but that survey only got responses from like 50 people. Uh, mm. And the FCC just said that they got applications from 181, I think it was. I think uh, yeah. th that's a huge difference. Um, and part of the difference uh, is because they went from originally saying that they were only going to give money to people with 2 million customers or less to then uh, what you said, Will, it's 10 million or less. So, right. so they kind of moved the goalposts uh, and, you know, they just released a public notice, I think yesterday or the day uh, before saying, you know, kind of attributing the disparity in the estimate and what the actual came in to that shifting goalpost. A um, couple other interesting things. Um, a Windstream representative actually told me that their cost estimate is higher than they think the actual costs are going to be. And uh, they told me that's because they had to submit estimated costs um, based on an FCC cost catalog. Um, and he said, you know, we don't really think it's going to cost that much, but we had to use the numbers the FCC gave us for costs of certain equipment. Um, so it's not clear to me that 5.6 billion is going to be the actual number that it costs. And remember, the FCC isn't going to be reimbursing based on the estimates. They're going to be, be reimbursing based on actual costs. Um, mm -hmm. And then the other thing that I wanted to point out is that they, the FCC does actually have a procedure that they have to follow if there's not enough funding to go around. Um, and under the law, top priority is going to be given to service providers with 2 million customers or less. So that means any of the larger operators are going to get squeezed out. Um, yeah. And then after that, um, the so-called second priority people are going to be advanced communication service providers um, that are accredited public or private non-commercial educational institutions, uh, as well as healthcare providers and libraries. And then anything that's left over kind of gets divvied up among everybody else who applies. But um, mm -hmm. the takeaway there for me is that some of the bigger operators might kind of get short shrift here. Yeah. Diana, that's great insight. Great insight baseball <laughs> to share on, on the podcast. And I just got to, I got to go back and point out the fact that the FCC collected 82 billion plus with C-band. And if they need to like dip into the kitty to pay for some altimeters with the whole FAA debacle, they might want to kick in a little bit here. I, you know, the digital, the digital divide is real. Rural, you know, connectivity is lacking. And, um, you know, it's that that's that's beyond just the whole rip and replace notion with with the Chinese infrastructure, but it's going to have to be taken care of at some point. But again, great insight, Diana. But let's go to your second topic this week. And you want to talk about Red Hat 5G service assurance. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to jump into this saying I've never actually heard this company's name said aloud. So I'm just going to go for it. Uh, EXFO. Yeah. <laughs> Exivo? Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, they teamed up with Red Hat to make um, their 
service assurance solution available as a Red Hat container. Um, and the idea behind this is to kind of give operators who are putting more of their 5G functions in the cloud visibility all the way across their mobile network environments. So uh, that includes, you know, edge to core to cloud. Um, they said that uh, a tier one North American operator is already using this, um, but they didn't say who, uh, which I find interesting. You know, I have a couple thoughts, speculations, but I'm going to kind of keep those to myself because I really mm -hmm. don't know. Um, right. And I, I don't want to, you know, put my foot in my mouth here. Um, but yeah, uh, when they put out um, this announcement, they noticed that almost two thirds of network issues are coming from virtualized cloud infrastructure. So mm -hmm. this is going to be really important as more people are kind of moving operations to the cloud. You know, we heard, I think it was last year, AT&T said they're going to put their whole core in the cloud. Um, right. So uh, I think this kind of flew under the radar a bit in terms of how much people paid attention to this announcement. But I think the topic more generally of service assurance for um, cloud environments um, all the way through the rest of the network is going to be increasingly important as we move forward. Uh, do you guys have anything to add? I'll just add that I've, you know, I've written on a number of, um, you know, topics related to networking assurance and it's mission critical. So um, this is going to, it's going to, it's going to become more and more important to your point, Diana, that, you know, these cloud infrastructure providers, you know, provide a very robust, uh, you know, assurance and an orchestration platform. Anshul, what do you think? Yeah, I'll be honest with you. I'm not the, uh, the expert in, uh, what is it, network service assurance in the cloud. <laughs> right. uh, I'm not, I'm not that guy as, as you well know. Um, but I understand what's necessary for different ISVs and application developers to have consistency when they're running their apps across different operators' clouds. Um, there's just going to have to be a lot of software running um, to ensure that the experience is consistent and reliable. Um, and I have a feeling that you're going to see a lot more of these kinds of services being deployed to ensure that um, there's consistency across the cloud, both horizontally and vertically. Um, and it, you know, it's only going to get more complicated as we have a, a mixture of ORAN and, and legacy, oh, yeah. uh, you know, it's only going to get, it's only going to get worse. <laughs> yeah. I mean, no cloudification, the, all the disaggregation is introducing complexities. Um, absolutely. I, you know, totally, totally agree with you, buddy, but let's hit your second and final topic this week. And we talked about this last week, the whole NVIDIA arm deal being off, but you want to provide an update. Yes. So it is officially off. Um, SoftBank has announced that uh, NVIDIA will no longer be acquiring ARM. Uh, this is obviously relevant because ARM is a big supplier uh, of IP to most of the, the industry, both on the smartphone side and on the network infrastructure side. Um, so it's relevant to 5G on both ends. Um, and the uh, company ARM itself will be having an IPO um, and it has a new CEO, Renee Haas, who ironically came to ARM a few years ago from NVIDIA. Um, and he is now CEO replacing uh, Simon. Uh, both guys are, are, are great. Um, I know Simon as well as Renee and Renee is honestly a, a good replacement for Simon one, because naturally he's been reporting to Simon for quite some time, um, but also has a lot of um, just experience in the semi-industry and is, is a, He's like a great speaker and I think he's very personable. 
Um, so I think it's a good thing for ARM. And also, ARM is projecting to have its best quarter ever. Um, so, you know, they're, they're going to be reporting earnings before their IPO that make their IPO look pretty good in the sense that they're, you know, 2021 is probably going to be their best year ever. Um, and that's a great position to be in if you want to IPO uh, when you consider that I don't really think there is a company that could have acquired ARM. Um, I think the only solution other than an IPO would have been some kind of consortium uh, of all the cloud vendors or all the semiconductor manufacturers because ARM supplies everybody, uh, in, including Intel uh, and AMD. So, you know, it's just something you can't avoid. And I think they have to remain neutral. And I think they can be profitable as a public company as they were many years ago before uh, SoftBank took them private. My only observation is, you know, oftentimes it takes a different CEO to take a company public than to manage a merger. And you're very, very close to these players, Anshul, like more so than I am. But, you know, based on, you know, the research that I've done on his resume and his background, I think he's a great fit. And I think ARM can move beyond this and uh, it'll be interesting to see earnings when they're reported. What do you think, Diana? I don't have too much to add. Uh, this isn't really my area of expertise. I'm definitely going to leave it to you guys because you know better than I do. Um, the only question I have um, is whether there's any read through uh, from the fact that this kind of transaction fell through to any of the other deals that are on the table. I know uh, Microsoft announced some. So do you think there's going to be any sort of... Um, uh, connection there in terms of what can and can't get done? I think um, regulatory scrutiny is going to be tighter than it's ever been, especially yeah. as, for as long as this administration is in control of the FTC. Ultimately, the FTC is what killed this. Um, and, you know, Microsoft is very clearly trying to uh, appease the FTC as they, they try to get close their deal with Activision. Um, I think AMD today announced that their acquisition uh, of Xilinx has gotten all the approvals it needs. Um, so they, I don't think that's in jeopardy anymore. Um, but, you know, I think mergers are always going to be something that, that are going to be more scrutinized than they ever have been. Um, and I think that, that includes the acquisitions that Meta has made in the last few years. Um, and there's, there are multiple ongoing investigations about that. So we'll see what happens, but I think you're, you're right. There, there are some implications. I think this was a unique application, unique uh, situation because uh, this was a supplier being purchased by a, by a customer effectively. Um, and that generally doesn't happen very often. Well, it's another been another great podcast, Diana. Thanks for joining. Anshul, why don't you take us home? Absolutely. We hope our viewers and listeners found this week's topics interesting. If anyone out there would like to provide insights for a future podcast or a specific topic, please reach out to us on social media. Will is at WillTownTech. I'm at Ancho Sog and Diana is at Dia Marie's Beat. We hope you have a great weekend and please tune in again next week.